Well, let me welcome you to another um, provocative Sunday in the prophets. In case you hadn't picked up on that yet, you, you will shortly. But it is also Father's Day, and I thought we might start with just a little bit of tribute to our fathers. It's come from a little book. If uh, I could have a little help from the booth starting the slides, that would be great. Thank you. Called Me and My Dad by Stuart Hample. It says, my dad does things like make the beds and clear the table, but he never, never, ever cleans the, the cat box. He says he comes from royal blood, so he doesn't have to do litter boxes. <laughs> Stephen, Stephen M. I can talk with him about a lot of things I can't talk about with my mom but I'm not going to write it down because we get in trouble. <laughs> so it says Sanford. As a result of things like that, there's a special affection that children have for their fathers. I love my dad because he's my only father and I have lived with him for all my life. Also, he's going to take me to see Godzilla. <laughs> Ross, a pure love, no doubt. Um, Seth says, I, I love him very much. If he will raise my allowance, I will love him even more. Of course, that's reciprocated by dads. When my bowling ball goes in the gutter, Chad says, and I get mad, my dad says, I will love you even if it goes out the door and into the river. That's really silly, but it's nice to know anyway. <laughs> and lastly, Allison says, even if I'm bad, my dad has to still like me because I am in his family. I think, I think it's a law, she says. <laughs> and there's a sense in which... It's a law. It's an inviolable law for one particular dad because the Bible says, because God is love. Our Heavenly Father is love. And um, He has an unshakably deep love for His children. Probably amongst the last places we would look to hear a message of the love of the Father for the likes of us would be in those, the words of the prophets, those men of such strong, stinging rebuke. But today, that's exactly where I want to invite you to turn in your Bible, to the book of Hosea, where we find one of the most stunning portraits of the love of God for His people in all of Scripture. And today, we're going to continue our journey through the entire Bible together this year as we connect the dots on the mission of God in our world and in our lives. So if you'll open up to Hosea, we'll start there. And I'd like to pray for us as we do that. Okay. Father, in your kindness, help us see afresh the amazing truth that you love us, even us. And so I pray that uh, as your word is read and taught now, it, it might grip us freshly. Help us run to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the prophet Hosea lived some seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. On our timeline that we've been looking at off and on, he's preaching right about the time, just before and just after Israel falls into captivity to the Assyrians, which are those people that you never wanted to be captive to. It's a really dark and difficult time when God's people are being taken captive as a judgment for their sin. He is one of those prophets who brings those strong, strong messages to God's people, both by his words and prophets did by their enactment of those words. You remember Isaiah wandering around naked or next best thing for three years 
You remember um, Jeremiah carrying a yoke like some enslaved animal around the town. Uh, Ezekiel laying on his side for over a year each day walking out, laying down on his side in the middle of the street. All of these object lessons to communicate God's truth to his people in a way that we would get it. We wouldn't miss it. And Hosea has one of those prophetic enactments that God asks him to do, and it concerns his marriage. Um, Chapter 1 of Hosea, verse 2, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. With unmistakable clarity, God is telling Hosea to marry a woman who either was about to be or already was a prostitute. If she was not already active in the profession, she had the character that would make her an easy mark for Hosea to fulfill this mandate with. It's it's interesting to me that this is early when the Lord began to speak to Hosea. I'm sure Hosea wished that God would have asked him to do anything first time out of the blocks, but this, this is not the way prophets want to begin their ministry. Go marry an adulterous woman. So I'm sure against the counsel of his friends and of his family, imagine what Hosea's mom was thinking. He does exactly what God asks him to do. And he takes a prostitute named Gomer to be his bride. And he loves her. And she bears three children to him. But really, only the first is known to be to him. The other two, he's not really sure. And you have to wonder, when you're married to a woman like this, do you ever really know? And God uses language, as we see there, children of unfaithfulness that just add I'm sure to Hosea's angst about these things. But Hosea loves her with a very faithful love. And then in kind of a gap in our story between the first and third chapters that we're going to look at this morning, the unbearable happens and Gomer leaves Hosea. She who has been so undeservably loved leaves him in spite of his love for her. She leaves him in search of other lovers, we are told. And so now Hosea bears the shame of betrayal on top of all the others, the doubts and the questioning, the bitterness and the anger. But God speaks to him again with a message that I think might be more difficult than the first message. And he says this at the beginning of the third chapter of Hosea, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. That, that language, bought her back, I, I bought her back, cracks the door and lets us just get a glimpse of where it was that Gomer had descended to. I wonder if Hosea was out late at night searching the streets in that part of town, going from alley to alley and from brothel to brothel, looking for his bride. I wonder if that's where he found her. Enslaved to another man? Used by other men? Or maybe it was during the day at one of those auctions they have for slaves where she was seen out in front of everybody wearing the garb of a whore or the rags of a harlot used up or perhaps 
standing naked before all the men in the city. And he stands and he participates in the bidding to buy back his own bride from another. Because of his love, he wins that bidding and he takes her home again to love her still. Why would God require his prophet to marry a prostitute? Prophets were, were extraordinary men of God. If you've been reading along with us, you know they are, they're virtually sinless in the way they're portrayed in the Bible. These were remarkable men. Why then does God ask this of Hosea? Now, let me read more fully these verses in chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods, and love the sacred raisin cakes. Hosea is enacting God's love for his own wayward people in the way that he loves his wife. God has Hosea model his love for us. And don't miss it, in the way this works, um, God is like Hosea and we are like Gomer. Now, most of us would resist the description of unfaithful let alone the title of prostitute. But the Bible says we've all been wayward. It says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. He says, there are no religious singles in God's eyes. Everyone is either faithfully married to God or is a prostitute. Hosea shows us through the way he loves his wayward wife, the way God loves the likes of us. People like you and me. His is a love that chooses, that chooses the likes of us. Not because of who we are, more likely in spite of who we are, um, and who we have become and what we've done. God says, I will take for myself a wife, and he chooses us, knowing that we would be unfaithful. See, when we think about being chosen, we don't often think about the way God chooses. We think about it the way, for instance, Google chooses. Um, Google, as you, I'm sure you are aware, is that grand search engine that has become an amazing company. Uh, everybody would really like to work for Google. They're very generous to their employees, read stock options. And they've gone from, back in 2002, 700 employees to 2,700 employees in 2004, to nearly 17,000 employees in 2008. But they are still very selective in the way they choose their employees. For instance, in some um, magazines, they, they run a 21-question aptitude test. Here's an example to tell you whether or not you are fit to work for Google. How many different ways can you color an icosahedron with one of the three colors on each face? I know you all got that one, so I got another one. Um, on an infinite two-dimensional rectangular lattice of one-ohm resistors, what is the resistance between two nodes that are a knight's move away? Okay. And if you can answer those, then you can consider being interviewed by Google to be chosen to be an employee. Um, they... Um, tried a different approach in two, back in 2004. They put billboard ads that simply read this. 
first 10-digit prime found in consecutive digits of e.com. And if as you were driving down the highway and saw that billboard and could answer it, then you could go to that website, and there at that website, anyone able to solve that puzzle was taken to another website, confronted with another thorny math problem. Those smart enough to decipher that were taken to an internal Google page that praised your big, magnificent brain and invited you to apply for a job. That's how Google chooses their employees. God chooses very differently, doesn't he? It's interesting when you look at the Bible, why God chose and who God chose. It's very interesting. In Deuteronomy um, chapter 7, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. He's talking to his people Israel, his chosen people. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not so much about you. It's about God. It's not so much about how wonderful we are, but how amazing God is and the way he loves. The New Testament describes a similar pattern. Brothers... Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Google wouldn't pick many of us here this morning. Any of us, probably. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast is in the Lord. It's not so much about how wonderful we are. It's about how amazing is God's love for us. If you think God chose you because you're somebody special, I have a story for you. It's a well-worn story. Some of you have heard it before, but it, it's a beautiful one, and I'd like to share it with you again this morning. There was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, he noticed his wife engaged in a deep discussion with the service station attendant. It turned out that she knew him. In fact, back in high school, before she met her eventual husband, she used to date this man. The CEO got in the car, and the two drove in silence. He was feeling pretty good about himself when he finally spoke and said, I bet I know what you were thinking. I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. She said, no. I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd be a Fortune 500 CEO, and you'd be a service station attendant. (laughs) So, men, on Father's Day, if you think you're something special, just ask your wife. Okay. With an unexplainable love, God chooses us. He chooses us not when we are most beautiful, but in our fallenness. Why we are still, as Hosea would say, active in the profession. He loves us. To know the love of God as Father is to know what it means to be chosen, to be cherished, to be wanted by the Lord of the universe, to be able to call him Abba, Father. 
His is a love that chooses the likes of us. And it's a love that pursues us. God says in chapter 3 to Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again. Go after her, though she is loved by another and is an adulterous lover as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Hosea pursues her. He never gives up. He never stops loving. He never stops searching. He loves in spite of her betrayal, in spite of her unfaithfulness, her ungratefulness, her abandonment. He loves her in spite of what others will think or what they would advise. He lovingly pursues because he loves her as the Lord loves the Israelites. His is a love that pursues. It's a love that never gives up. John Ortberg describes it this way in his really helpful book, Love Beyond Reason. He says, um, it's like hide-and-seek. He says, hide-and-seek is a simple game. One person seeks, everyone else hides, hence the name hide-and-seek. It is most fun for those who hide. When you hide, you choose where you go. When you hide, you get to keep your eyes open. Those who hide are in control. Everyone wants to hide. He says, the hard job is to be the seeker. The seeker deliberately allows those who hide to get away. The seeker places herself in the humble position of searching on and on for people who deliberately evade her, who laugh at her. No one wants to be the seeker. The one who searches does not even get much of a title. In other games, the pivotal player at least gets a high-profile name, he says. The center, the pitcher, the goalkeeper. The one who searches is simply called it. He says, not Captain It, not Chief Executive It, just It. In fact, the call that starts the game is simply not It. (laughs) Whoever is It will have to be very patient, he says. It will have to search long and hard. It will have to face evasion and trickery. The story of God and the human race is a story of hide and seek, and God is It. His love searches for us, pursues us relentlessly, bringing restoration to wayward souls. In Hosea chapter 2, God reveals his great hope for his people. He is searching for, for his bride. He says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Notice as you look through Hosea, after the third chapter, it unfolds into messages of judgment in many ways like the other prophets. There's room in the single book of Hosea as well as in our lives for God to be both loving, loving husband, and just judge. There's room for that. There needs to be room for that in the way you think about God. Note, too, that this passage is probably the most exemplary passage for how it is you should love a wayward spouse as a follower of God. In a marriage marred by unfaithfulness, the love of God loves on, loves still. To know the love of God as Father is to know what it means to never be forsaken even when we deserve to be forsaken. He will find us 
and show his love to us again. His is a love that chooses and pursues. And Hosea says it pays a great price. He says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. He bought her for what was probably the price of a female slave. But only half of it he pays in cash. Could it be that this poor prophet didn't have enough cash? That he had to supplement it with his food? Could it be that Hosea paid everything he had to buy back his bride? How costly, how costly is the love of God for the likes of us? For God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He died for us. And this morning, some of you are here and you are hearing God speak of his love for you. And it's like it's the very first time you've ever heard it. John Ortberg says, at the end of that game, if someone hides too well, it will yell the words that end the game. It cups its hands and hollers so that the cry can be heard throughout the whole neighborhood. Ali, ali, oxen free. No one quite knows where this chant came from or what it originally meant. Latin, he says, perhaps for liberate the oxen. But hiders know what it means. You can come home. You're safe. You will not be chased or hurt or penalized. You can return. Like the prodigal son coming home to the fatted calf, stop hiding, come home. It's the cry of grace. To all who want to hide, he says, who need to be sought, who are confused about being found, God has spoken in Jesus Christ, ali, ali, oxen free. God says, Come out, come out, wherever you are. The time for hiding is over. The time for coming home has arrived. No penalties, no punishment, no getting caught. Just come home. Trust me, God says. We have, like Gomer, gone in pursuit of other lovers. And this morning, God invites us back. His invitation is to us. It's us he speaks of when he says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. Have you forgotten God? Do you go through days, whole days, where he doesn't even show up on your radar screen? Have you forgotten his amazing care for you? At the close of the service, you're going to have a chance today to embrace and cherish the amazing love of God for the likes of us. Maybe for you for the very first time. Or maybe for you once again. But don't miss that chance today. Don't miss that chance. The prophet's messages and enactments are loaded There's more to them than meets the eye. There's more to them than fits into their calendar in their day. The prophets often are looking just beyond their time and then far into the future. 
Joel, the prophet Joel does this with an event that's just happened to God's people. And he uses that to look far into the future. In Joel, the book right after Hosea in your Bibles, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What is the thing that has happened? He says, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. The nation has been devastated by a swarm of locusts. These locusts um, are really an amazing thing. The swarms can reach great sizes. In the late 1800s, there was a swarm that came across the Red Sea It was estimated to cover 2,000 square miles. Each square mile is estimated to contain up 120 million insects per square mile. And they devastate everything in their path. It's a pointer to the future for Joel. To a time of far greater destruction. It's a time he calls the day of the Lord. He says, it'll be like locusts. Before them, the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It's dreadful. Who can endure the day of the Lord, Joel says. It's a day that's far into the prophetic future. It was future to Joel and it remained future in the New Testament. Paul says, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. He said it hadn't come. It's still future. Peter says something similar. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's still future, and it's coming unexpectedly. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It's what we think about when we think about the apocalypse, this cataclysmic end of the world as we know it. That's the day of the Lord. It was future for Joel, and it was future for the writers of the New Testament. But Joel also says, in some sense, it's near. He says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. It's near. The New Testament writers, Peter would say the same thing. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. It's near. It's near in the Old Testament. It's near in the New Testament, and so it is for us. It's near, and the urgency of Joel's message is even more urgent for us. Listen to what Joel calls out to us to do in light of the day of the Lord. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. The urgent message of Joel is the message for us in light of the coming judgment of God. He simply says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered, 
will be rescued. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be delivered. This is Joel's message and the prophet Amos, who's the very next book over, adds his voice to this same great prophetic chorus. Amos now was a farmer and he gives a series of messages about this time. We, we don't know when Joel was written. Kind of guesses are all over the map. But Amos, we know, comes before the captivity. He comes in a time when things are going really well with God's people. It's a time of prosperity and blessing. The best of times. And he gives a series of prophecies and sermons and visions. And all the way up until the last half of the last chapter of his book, all about judgment and then five short promises of hope. And he has a special concern throughout his book for the poor. Listen to what Amos says in chapter 2. He says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. In chapter 8, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. He has a vision of fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. Basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. So a great judgment is coming. Why is it coming? Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over? that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat. Just um, illustrations of their greed. Skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. He has a special concern for the poor. Those who gain wealth at the expense of the poor, Amos says, whether intentionally or unintentionally, through oppression or indifference or even just forgetfulness, are at odds with the tender heart of God the Father for the poor. The prophets, almost all of them, bring us an expression of God's compassion, special concern for the poor. Listen to Isaiah. He says in chapter 41, the poor and needy search for water, but there's none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. The God of Israel will not forsake the poor. Jeremiah says it this way as he writes to the son of the good king, Josiah. He says of that king, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms, so says Josiah's son. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. He adds on, basically. God says to him, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father, the good King Josiah, have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord, to defend the cause of the poor and the needy? Over the years, Time Magazine has uncovered some interesting statistics on giving. The percentage of 
personal income in the U.S. that went to charitable giving during the Great Depression was 2.9%. Today it stands about 2.5%. Could it be said of you that you are being enriched personally? You're adding on without a corresponding increasing generosity towards those in need. There's another statistic from Time Magazine. Percentage of income given to charity for those under $10,000, it's about 5.2%. For those who make between seventy-five and 100000 it's about 1.6%. What about you? Today, listen to the loving heart of God for you. Receive the love of God for you. And share it with those in need. Listen, listen, I'm going to ask the worship team to come now and close us in a time of worship. But listen to the invitation from Hosea. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord's. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria can't save us. We will not mount war horses. We'll never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. And after they repent, listen to what God says. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. Let's bow in prayer and worship our loving Father. Lord, we bow before you. A little overwhelmed by your love and by our corresponding selfishness. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of us all, have mercy on us. Pray in Christ's name.